You can put your watches away. (laughs) But you come to church this morning, and you have your very own parking space. Some of you on the front lawn. (laughs) And you walk up to the front door, and you have your very own friendly greeter person out there in the tent. And they greet you. And you come into the lobby, and you get your very own coffee complete with a cup, thank you. Um, And you take your kids to their class where they have their very own teacher and you come into the worship center and you have your very own seat, same one every week. Um, And then your very own worship team gets up and they sing your very own favorite worship songs and then your, your very own pastor gets up and he preaches your own very favorite sermon. And if we're not careful, after all of that, it becomes my very own church where I get what I want and what I like. And if I don't, if my coffee runs out or somebody parks in my parking space or sits in my seat, then there's trouble in me church. Um, on any given Sunday. Last week, in the first part of 1 Corinthians 14, we saw that this ain't my very own church. It's not me church. It's Christ's church. Um, And even though we come here, and sure, uh, being fed and nurtured by the corporate gatherings of the church is a thing that is good for us. There's a thing that matters more. There's a thing that's more supreme in our commitment to come. One that is that we would honor and exalt Christ here. We come to worship Christ. But we also come, even before our own needs and desires are met, we come to build up the church. We come to strengthen one another, Paul taught us. Um, that this ain't me church, we said, it's we church. And I realized I needed a point of clarification on the spelling of that uh, this week. Not we church. By the way, this is the controller for that kind of we church. We church with an E. It's about love, Paul says, not technology. I come to church for you. You come to church for me. 1 Corinthians 14 is 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, applied to the gatherings of the church. Remember 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And then to start chapter 14, when Paul starts teaching us about the shape our worship is to take together when we gather, he says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. These gatherings, if they are to honor Christ, must be shaped by love, by building up one another. This is Paul's recurring theme. He says it different ways. Last week we saw, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind 
in order to instruct others, we could say in order to build others up, than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul says it's a thousand times better. Actually, he says it's 2,000 times better to build others up than merely to be built up myself when the church gathers. So in the passage we're going to look at today, starting in 14 with verse 26 through the end of the chapter, he says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And it's, it's fascinating to me that when God is giving His people instructions about worship, which is about Him, His concern is that we would love one another. His concern is that we would be loved when we walk into this place. How God must love the church. How He must love us. And of course, the great demonstration of that love, the love of God for us, for the church, is the cross, the work Jesus did on the cross. In 1 John 4, it says, In this is love, that we have lo- not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's an author, his name is Greg Boyle, and he helps us think about uh, this love God has for the church with this story. He writes about uh, a young man, his name is Rigo, he's a gang member, and he, was, he met Rigo at a, at a worship service for incarcerated youth. He'd been in jail uh, for a year and a half or so. And he asked Rigo, he says, Rigo, is your father going to come to this service? And Rigo says, no, he's a heroin addict and he's never been in my life. He used to beat me. And then something snapped inside of him and he recalled an image from his childhood. He said, I think I was in fourth grade, Rigo said, I came home, sent home in the middle of the day from school. And when I got home, my dad says, why did they send you home? And because my dad always beat me, I said, if I tell you, promise you won't hit me. He said, I'm your father. Of course I'm not going to hit you. So I told him. And at that, Rigo began to cry. And in a moment, he started wailing and rocking back and forth. And Boyle put his arms around him until he slowly calmed down. And when Rigo could finally speak again, he spoke quietly, still in a state of shock. He said, he beat me with a pipe. With a pipe. And after Rigo composed himself, Boyle asked about his mom. Rigo pointed to a small woman across the room and says, that's her over there. There's no one like her. He said, I've been locked up for a year and a half. She comes to see me every Sunday. You know how many buses she has to take every Sunday to come see me? And he started sobbing with the same ferocity as before. And after catching his breath, he said through the sobs, seven buses. She takes seven buses to see me. Imagine. Boyle says, God, as revealed in the person of Jesus, loves us like Rigo's mother loved her son, with commitment, steadfastness, and sacrifice. He says, we have a God who takes seven buses just to arrive at us. 
all throughout Jesus' ministry, his birth on Christmas morning, his meals with sinners, his healing of the sick, his death, ultimately his death on the cross for our sins, he showed us the heart of God, the God who will take a long journey of love just to find us. And so when we gather for worship, that's our great preoccupation that this God should love us this way. And that we would demonstrate this kind of love to one another in this room. That this seven buses kind of love, this cross-shaped kind of love would be demonstrated to the people in this room through us. This is to be the effect of the love of God on us. Again, 1 John, the next verse says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we we also ought to love one another. A couple verses later, we love because he first loved us. This is how we are loved. This is how we are to love one another. And so, in a gathering of worship, which is for God, one of his great concerns is that when you come here, you would be loved, that you would love, and that you would be loved. How God must love the church, how he must love you. Now, I tell you all of that because that's the frame of reference for the teaching that I'm about to give you. It is an expression of the love of God for you. It's the shape that He, the one who loves us, has given us to pour out His love uh, one to another when we gather together. Uh, This teaching will constrain you. It may confuse you. It's possible it may even frustrate you. But know that it is the love of God for you. That in this place, by these guidelines, you might experience the love of God and share the love of God with the people in this room. Um, It is an extraordinarily difficult section of Scripture to interpret and apply. So I would like to pray for you, and you can pray for me. Let's pray. God, may your word prevail over any other words. May it be received by humble, teachable hearts that trust that what you have for us is best for us, is love for us. May this teaching shape our church and the love that's shared in this room. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our passage begins in verse 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church, And speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion but of peace, um, Paul says in those early verses. So, in the context of teaching that 
there's really diverse spontaneity that happens when the church gathers. One brings a hymn, one brings a lesson, one brings a revelation, one brings a tongue, another brings an interpretation. Paul is now pressing the church that those things must happen in an orderly fashion. And it all hinges on that last verse I read, verse 33. Um, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He is not a God of disorder or confusion, but he's a God of peace and harmony and unity. This is very much in contrast to what would have been happening in Corinth in the pagan worship of the day, which was marked by chaotic, frenzied worship. Gordon Fee helps us when he says that the theological point here is crucial. The character of one's deity is reflected in the character of one's worship. The Corinthians must therefore cease worship that reflects the pagan deities more than the God whom they have come to know through the Lord Jesus Christ. God is neither characterized by disorder nor is he the cause of it in the assembly. Worship that conveys the love of God well must reflect the character of God well. And as soon as you open up your Bible you get a sense that God's a God of order, not chaos. What's he do? As soon as we open the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the earth and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God begins to bring order out of this formless void kind of chaos that existed. God is a God of order. He is a God who is understandable not incoherent. That's why we have this book written down with message, a message from God for us. Because he is a God that's understandable, who communicates to us in ways we can understand. So for our worship to reflect him and convey his love in a way that truly builds up our brothers and sisters in this room, it has to be ordered worship. It has to be understandable worship that promotes peace and unity and harmony, that marks us as worshipers of the God of peace, as Paul calls him in Romans 15. So, to accomplish this, for love to rule our worship and the church to be built up, there must be order that helps us understand in our worship. So the first thing Paul does, he gives us order for the use of the gift of tongues. Okay, He says, if any speak in a tongue... Let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there, is, if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So there's a limit of two or three people who could speak in tongues in any gathering of the church. They are to speak one at a time, and only if there's accompanying interpretation. If there's no interpreter, then this gift is only to be used in private. And Paul here, in this passage, is decidedly pro the use of tongues in private. Um, Many of our churches, sadly, and Christian organizations are not. Uh, They can only, at best, maybe begrudgingly tolerate tongues. Here's a commentator that I often work with on, uh, in preparing for 1 Corinthians. He says, uh, Paul did not discourage speaking in unknown languages in private. Nonetheless, 
the relative value and profitability of such an experience are so minimal that its practice seems almost foolish in view of the more edifying options that are open to Christians. This is not Paul's perspective on tongues. He does not think it's foolish to speak in tongues. He thinks it's good. He spoke in tongues more than anybody. He wishes everybody could speak in tongues. It's a manifestation of the Spirit of God for the good of the body. Paul is intent on protecting love in worship, which requires protecting understanding in worship. And so he does prescribe a careful order that this gift of speaking in tongues, unknown languages, is to be used in worship. This is a reflection of love. Love must build up, and to build up, it must be understood. So love constrains tongues. That's why Paul gives us these orders for tongues. But he also gives us an order for prophecy. He says, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all can learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So what is prophecy exactly? We don't know exactly. Um, D.A. Carson, in his writing on it, says that prophecy in the New Testament is an extraordinarily broad category. But Wayne Grudem helps us think about it this way. He says, The words prophet and prophecy were used of ordinary Christians who spoke not with absolute divine authority, but simply to report something that God had laid on their hearts or brought to their minds. So it might go like this. Tonight we gather for corporate prayer. And it is our practice in corporate prayer to have a time of testimony and giving thanks to encourage and strengthen the body. So someone tonight may stand up and give thanks to God, give a testimony of God's goodness in their life, maybe in their marriage. And when they're done sharing that testimony, they may say, you know, I have a sense from God that I really need to share this tonight because there are other people who are in the same boat that I was in. And I just want to encourage you to be faithful and to honor God and to trust Him to do a great work. That would fit in with what Paul envisions here as, as prophecy. That speech prompted by God for the building up of the body. Now, that's just one example. Um, Prophecy can be quite broad in the New Testament. Um, But something like that would fit into what, what might typically be thought of as prophecy in the New Testament. And we have a chance to do that tonight when we gather for corporate prayer. So I encourage you to come and be sensitive to what God might say or do through you if you're one of the uh, few who might speak in that matter tonight. But prophecy is ordered as well. Only two or three, uh, he says. It must be evaluated to see if it really is from God. It can be interrupted. He says if one is speaking and the Spirit prompts another one, then the first is to yield the floor, so to speak. Keeps one person probably from dominating the entire uh, time. And it's available to all, not just people who are prophets. He says that all of you may prophesy for the good of all. So it may be that God wants to speak through any one of us to bring encouragement to the body. Um, This seems to be widely available to the church. Um, 
And this is a beautiful, strengthening thing in the church. In this chapter, this is how Paul describes prophecy affecting the church. He says in verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. In verse 31, he says you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. This is a beautiful gift to the church that God wants to prompt his people to speak in ways that bring encouragement and comfort and instruction and upbuilding. It is a delightful thing for the church when God's people respond to this uh, spirit-giving prompting to prophesy. Now, in the church, it's evident that prophets are in control of their speech, just like tongue speakers are. They can stop. This is not some, they're not possessed or something like that and they speak out of control because they can yield the floor. They can stop. If two or three have already spoken, they can not speak. Um, This is contrary again to the pagan chaos of Paul's days and to some of the worship services that some of you have witnessed in our day where things are out out of control, it seems. All of this, this order, protects understandability in worship as an expression of love Love rules tongues. Love rules prophecy. That's why these orders are there. Now, perhaps even more puzzlingly, the next thing Paul does is to provide an order for women. So, uh, ladies, this is what Paul has to say. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And one of the, one of the things that I learned from this verse is that they do not pay me enough money to do this. Okay? Elders? Uh-uh. Yeah, I didn't know. Now, apparently, in Corinth, there was an issue with women speaking in a way that did not build up the church. We don't know what the shape of that was. But in trying to sort this out and apply it to our time, let me suggest two errors on either end of this interpretive uh, kind of nightmare that we face. And believe me, there are a multitude of ideas that have been put forward about what this could possibly mean. One thing we want to stay away from is the idea that these verses don't exist. Let me explain that to you. Um, Our Bibles were not originally written in English. Uh, The New Testament was written in Greek. And so there are ancient manuscripts in Greek that people look at and compare to make sure that the copies that we have put together are, are accurate. And they are extraordinarily accurate. But one of the differences that you see as you compare the different manuscripts, those ancient Greek manuscripts here, is that these two verses, sometimes they're in a different place. Sometimes at the end of the chapter. Instead of right here in verse 33 and through 35, they come at, at the end. And so some scholars have scratched their head and tried to figure out, well, why would they possibly move them? And their conclusion, with lots of twists and turns, is that it's because they never really existed. Somebody wrote them down later. Um, now, these gentlemen have way more confidence in their textual criticism than I do or you should. Because every single one of the manuscripts we've ever found, we have lots, all of them always have these verses. They're always there. So because they're always there, 
We want to honor them and try to sort them out. We're not going to dismiss them because they're difficult or we don't like them. Um, So we want to avoid that option. The other option is to make the silence that's required of women in these churches absolute. Ladies enter the doors, zip, not a word of greeting. Women on the worship team only hum. No praying. Women can't pray at the prayer meeting. They can't prophesy. They can't give testimony. They can't share of God's goodness. They can't read scripture. Uh, you know, shut them down. Okay. Um, we don't want to do that because that's contrary to what Paul just taught. We, we make him contradict himself if we take this prohibition absolutely. You remember back in chapter 11... Paul says that every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now, apart from all the questions about head coverings, it's evident that women were praying and prophesying. So evidently, what Paul is doing here is not an absolute prohibition of all speech by women when they gathered for worship. There's evidence that that simply was not the case and, and not what he was asking so what seems the best path through this, and again, it's, this is very, very difficult to figure out, um, is that what Paul is doing here is he's prohibiting a certain kind of speech, not all speech. In particular, it seems best to understand that he would be referring to the speech that he may have just been alluding to when he talks about the evaluating of the prophets or the The prophets would speak, and then there would be some kind of valuation. And the assumption that I'm making is that that was was a verbal evaluation was then done by those prophets, by the congregation. And that the women are asked not to judge those prophecies. In particular, he seems to have husbands and wives in view here. As you can imagine, husband prophesies, wife stands up, says, that's not a God, that's absolute nonsense. Uh... That could make for a real interesting ride home from church after, after that experience. So he's encouraging uh, a right order in worship in that way. But he says it's not really about protecting marital harmony. He says it's in the law. And most scholars think this points back to Genesis 2 and the order, the good, loving order God established in his creation with respect to men and women and, and the way they relate to one another. Um, This would be consistent with what Paul is going to later write in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where he says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet or silent. And here it's evident. Paul is not prohibiting all speech, just a certain kind the kind that involves teaching or exercising authority over a man. That's what judging prophecy would do. She would be put in a situation of exercising spiritual authority over a man, which is what Paul's restricting. This is the point at which North Wake has applied this um, to the role of women in leadership and in worship. Women are not allowed to participate in speech, whether that's teaching or preaching or the judging, assessing of prophecy um, in some fashion that would put them in a place where they are teaching or exercising authority over a man. And I am extremely aware how radically countercultural what I am telling you is. 
There was a survey that Gallup did, and he, was, he asked this question, and he put it as kindly as, as he could. He says, a wife should submit graciously to the servant leadership of her husband. 69% of American adults, male and female, disagree with that. But then he told them, um, you know that's in the Bible. Didn't affect them hardly at all. 60% still disagreed. Bible schmeibel, they say. I don't like that. Okay. I don't want to believe that. Um, but this is the trusting posture that a Christian woman's true beauty and influence flows from. Let me just underscore how that can be. It's here, in this place, in this posture, that she can most powerfully influence her husband. Peter famously says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by silence, by the conduct of their wives. It's a place of great influence. It's a place where a wife takes a role of a helper to her husband in the same way that God is a helper to a man. This happens commonly throughout the Old Testament. You remember that when Eve was created, she was uh, Adam's helper. Some of the old Bibles say, help meet. Um, that language occurs elsewhere in the Old Testament. For instance, Moses names his son... Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help meet, my helper, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So the posture of a woman helping her, her man is just the same posture of God helping a man. It is, an, it is not a, a, a demeaning posture um, in that regard. It's how she reflects the love of the church for her Savior for all to see. In Ephesians, it says, As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. And this is patterned after relationships in the Trinity themselves. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And as Christ the Son, though co-equal as deity with the Father, gladly submits to the will of the Father. So a a woman, co-equal in every way in value with her husband, is willing to be in trusting submission to her husband. Um, To be in the place of a helper, like God is a helper to a man. To be in the place of Christ, in submission to the Father, To be in the place of the church, loving and trusting Christ, this is the beautiful place that women of faith are called to occupy in the church. It's reflected here in a loving restraint of their speech in worship, just as tongue speakers in love restrain their speech and prophets in love restrain their speech, so women are here instructed Likewise, in love to restrain their speech, all for the building up of the church, love must rule in worship. And Paul says back in verse 33, this is the pattern of all the churches. 
And now he's about to rebuke the church in Corinth because somehow they think that they are exceptional. They have special insights, unique insights that allow them special places and special rules. And Paul will have none of that. He says, um, was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So Paul is saying, if you don't sit, submit to these teachings, you have no, no right to speak in the church. Note, the prophets must submit to the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Paul is writing, under the inspiration of the Spirit, the Scriptures. Scriptures rule and govern prophecy. Okay, scripture is our final authority. That's how we evaluate prophecy. So the prophets are subject to the words of the apostle that are the words of Scripture here. And I want you to notice that Paul has no use for an arrogant church that thinks it's exceptional, that thinks it's special, that thinks it's better than other churches, cooler than other churches, hipper than other churches, more useful to God than other churches. And we need to be careful that we don't become some arrogant church as God uses us. We love our church, and we should love our church. But that shouldn't lead us to think that we're better than, exceptional, special, etc., etc. In humility, we are to consider other churches as more important than ourselves. Paul closes with these important summary thoughts. He says, So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. All things should be done decently and in order. So in glad obedience to Paul's teaching at North Wake, we don't forbid speaking in tongues in our fellowship. They are welcome in our gatherings with accompanying interpretation. And they are welcome to be used privately. We encourage prophecy. We encourage people to be sensitive to what God might say through them as they walk closely with Him and sense the Spirit's prompting to edify, to build up, to encourage, to console, to teach the church. And we're going to do all these things decently in order. This is not some kind of bean counterish, OCD kind of order just for order's sake. N.T. Wright says there are many churches today where there is so much order and peace that Paul might have wondered if everyone had gone to sleep. Um, this order that we're striving for is a way to share the love of God with one another as we restrain our speech and reflect His character and protect the peace in our gatherings. Let me pray for us, and then Daniel has a closing benediction and a couple of important announcements for us. Father, um, may your word have its effect on this church. May our hearts be humble and in submission. May the Spirit manifest himself beautifully in ways that build up and encourage and strengthen everyone who calls Northwake home, everyone who ventures in these doors. And so we submit as your people here at Northway, to your word and its teaching for our lives. We ask this in Christ's name.
Amen.